Hey, it's Alexandria Shrake here, and welcome to Engage, a global energy show podcast where we tell the stories behind the business and the people of all things energy. A huge welcome to our audience. Today, I'll be chatting with the Honorable Jean Charest about political life and energy development, national pipeline projects, and the future of work in Canada. Welcome, Jean. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm well. So if you recall when we met, you gave a fireside chat to the Public Policy Forum on your experiences as Premier, and you had this incredible knack for remembering every person in the room. How do you do that? <laughs> well, there is no trick. It's all context. and But there's things that prompt your memory. And small events is what triggers my memory, small things that allow me to remember, which is, you know, by association is good. So... That's the only, there's no magical trick to it. I also recall when we met, I referred to you as Jean. And uh, one, yeah. of, one of my peers in the room was just mortified. And she came up to me later and was like, how could you refer to him like that? He's the honorable Monsieur Charest. And I was like, I'm a rural Albertan. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> Jean is perfectly fine. <laughs> perfectly fine. How do you introduce yourself usually? If it's the bio, I've been involved in public life for 28 years, half of it federal, half of it provincial. And in, in some jobs and responsibilities that have been uh, transformational for me when I was federal minister of the environment in the early 90s, and we did the Earth Summit in Rio. I ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party, lost. And then after the election campaign of 93, I was the only one of only two survivors of that train wreck and uh, led the party was part of the 95 referendum campaign, which was a very uh, obviously seminal moment in the history of the country, given the very, very tight outcome. I went on to lead the Conservative Party to 20 seats in the House and then went on to lead the Liberal Party of Quebec in opposition and then in three consecutive mandates. Had a, a lot of different policies I implemented on, on resources for north, the north of Quebec, called Plan A, labor mobility agreements. The Canada-Europe trade agreement was my initiative. I mean, there's a whole host of things I did that I really enjoyed. But So my common thread is a very deep love and appreciation for Canada. And uh, I'm, I think we, you know, we're very, very lucky to be born in this country. My, I, I always thought it was my job in life to make sure that my kids would also enjoy this country as much as I did. I've heard you tell stories before about when you were negotiating with the Grand Cree chief, Matthew Mooncombe, in respect to hydroelectric development. I mean, this is one of many stories I'm sure you can draw from. This one or others, what did you take away from that experience? And like, what? how can we apply that today? Today, in any very important project, especially in the resource space, it's very demanding. The way we get things done has changed and evolves over time and will continue to evolve. And one of the lessons in dealing and working with the Cree of Northern Quebec is how important it was to establish a relationship of trust, to do it upstream, early, and to make it real, to uh, nourish that relationship. It, is, it, it just can't be transactional. I guess if that, that may be a good way to put it. You know, if the relationship is purely transactional, it may work. But for major projects that ha affect communities, it has to be more than that. There has to be a commitment to each other. And that means listening to each other and, and taking risks together. And if you're able to reach that point, which is what happened with Matthew Kuhncom and myself, 
then you can really make things happen and, uh, and things change. So it was the fruit of lessons and experience also, Alex. It wasn't just something you'd learn. You learn it the hard way by through trial and error. So then what would you say to the challenges between provinces and some of the polarization we see? Well, if it's a major project in the area of energy, it, you, you, need to, you need someone who's going to champion the project. Any major project, whether it is a resource project or a business project or a political project to do a trade agreement or do anything substantial, requires that uh, someone politically owns the project and takes the ball and runs with it and defends it. Otherwise, things don't happen otherwise. There's just too much inertia. And there's a lack of that. On energy, for example, for national projects, the first responsibility comes to the federal government. And it's not enough for the federal government to just say, well, you know, uh, this project we're interested in, and if it meets all the criteria, then it can go ahead. It's not enough. You have to be able to say, I believe in this project. I want it to happen. We think it should happen. And this is why, and I'll defend it. And of course, then of course we'll get it right. We're not just going to do things because we want to do them. We're going to do them in respect to the interest of communities and people and the environment. And so then you do. But, you know, there's no substitute for the leadership required to get big things done. Otherwise, just, it just doesn't happen. How might then project proponents or provincial governments better position themselves to collaborate? Well, you have to, uh, first of all, there's a few basic rules. You don't take the other government or other partners by surprise. You, you have to uh, educate them to what it is that you're trying to do in the positive sense of the word, not, you know, not to sound condescending, but you, know, you need to go out and persuade and, uh, and do that. When I worked with other provinces and we worked on projects of common interest, you worked a lot on explaining it, what it is that you wanted to do and why you wanted to do it and understanding what their interests are and being, being able to acknowledge that interest and then finding ways to do it. Generally, if you do that, it'll work. Where there are obstacles is when it's not on the other side's agenda. It's just not, just not what they want to do. Well, then, you know, you're not going to be able to advance it very much if they have another, they have another list of things they want to do instead. Well, then you'll just have to wait for a different opportunity. So then do you think the current situation we're in now, I mean, the elephant in the room, of course, is pipelines. Do you think the current situation we're in now then is more to your first point of catching a party by surprise or is it competing agendas? I think it's it's a number of things. And let's take pipelines, for example, and let's take the example of Energy East. Oil and gas industry in Western Canada has not typically had to pay a lot of time and attention to Eastern Canada. And because they did not, they didn't have a good sense of what it was on the ground and who the players were and who the, uh, and so when they advanced with the project, uh, there's things they didn't know that they didn't know. It made it more difficult for them to advance their case and say, this is why it's a good idea. And, uh, and so there was a lack of, effort made to cultivate that. I'm not blaming anyone. It's, 
you know, it may be, you look back, you say, well, listen, like we were busy doing our business. It's not as though we were, we were pushing anyone aside and, and deliberately ignoring them. We were just busy carrying on our business. But if you had a longer term vision of being, building a pipeline, it would have been a good idea to make a very concerted long-term effort as soon as you decided you want to do this project to make sure that you were talking to those who are concerned. And then you turn around and you have to figure out how to get the project done so it meets the, the objectives of the other side. I'll give you an example. On Energy East, I always thought it would be interesting if La Caisse de Dépôt de Placement in Quebec actually owned a part of the project. It would have been a good idea. That would have allowed Quebecers to actually have a stake in the pipeline as opposed to just being a way through. It could have changed substantially the whole makeup and the perception of the project. Of course, hindsight is 2020, but I'm certain folks would happily reconsider how they partition the ownership stake in, say, a project today, just given the climate we're in. I know your firm, McCarthy Tetro, views ESG as a really important part of how a company conducts their business. Do you see the relationship, say, between entities that don't see eye to eye as salvageable? And does ESG play a role in these cases? I see it positively. I think it is. Uh, and, and it's become flavor of the day, by the way. So all the big law firms are involved and all the companies and now everyone is uh, everyone is ESG, right? And everything has become ESG. Anything, anything that wasn't is being painted ESG. And so when these trends take hold, it's important to know that it's, it, there's a trend component to it and to try to separate what is going to be uh, durable and what is just uh, maybe a pass, passing fad. What comes out of all of this, though, is something maybe a lot simpler than what we think. If you operate a company and you operate a business, it just makes sense to pay attention to the community that uh, that business exists in. To it, There's a new standard in the way people are being treated today, whether it's the Me Too movement or complaints of psychological harassment. There's a new level of, of expectation from people on the way they are treated in their day-to-day lives. And on the environment, well, I guess... It's a matter of looking at it from a, both a, an environmental but an economic point of view. And that means just doing what's right, but also economic. Now, the challenge is that uh, we can very well walk and chew gum at the same time. For example, every time when I was minister, I, we presented projects pretty regularly. If a project was announced, someone would say it's going to cause and it'll have an impact on the environment. And our response to that was that everything mankind does has an impact on the environment. That's understood. The real question is, what is it that we need to do to mitigate that, that makes sense? That's the right question. And so it's the challenge of leaders to be able to guide that discussion. And ESG is now this the new trend, and no one could ignore it. Let's take gender equality. I've seen, and I've seen it in politics, people announce that, well, my cabinet's going to be gender equal. Well, how, how do you announce that if you haven't prepared it way in advance? I was able to do a gender equality cabinet 10 years after starting 
to build a pipeline of women candidates who would run, get elected, and you just don't name anyone to any position of responsibility because they are either a woman or a man. No one in their right mind promotes people to their job for that reason. So, but there is good reason to believe that as a society, we need to be much more attentive to uh, our ability to, uh, to reaching out to those who are in minority positions to create an environment in which they're allowed to succeed. That's what it's about. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the real world and real change as opposed to just the cosmetic and the speeches. Well, and I mean, you mentioned this shift from what was in vogue, which was advancing gender equality, and now this shift to ESG, which gender equality is still part of that, but the tent is now more inclusive of outcomes. So then what do you think is next on the docket if this is the way we're moving? I think there'll be more and more of the economic outcomes. There'll probably be more discussion. I think we'll see it as we come out of the pandemic of inequality, economic inequality within businesses, how much the boss is being paid and how much employees are being paid. And I think we'll see more of that as an issue in the business environment. And people will have to pay attention to that. We're going to, one of the consequences, I think, of the pandemic is a realization of how important people who are in the service industry are to the day-to-day functioning of our society. They put food on the shelves of supermarkets. They are in restaurants. They do. uh, And you know what? If they're not there, we're in trouble. I I think you'll see economic rebalancing of of their relative power in the marketplace. I saw a presentation that you had given on economic recovery and gender equality recovery post-COVID. So I think that that really does speak to that. So there's this observation that you've described, like we have all these folks working really hard on the ground. Have you seen any other indicators to say that economic rebalancing is coming? I I think we're going to see it on pay uh, because there's going to be uh, labor shortages and countries are having difficulty balancing. They always have been, by the way. This isn't a new issue. The idea that we'd have high unemployment and jobs that can't be filled. It's been around for 30 years. It's, It's not new. It's only we've shed light on it now that it's all people say, oh, my God, it's even bigger than I thought. And I actually and add to that demographics. I'll tell you where the new I think the new a new area we'll go into is how we treat older workers. The idea that we expect people to retire at 65 is going to disappear. It's going to go away. But we have to change our mindset, Alex. We think we live that we're older, longer. We're actually not older longer. We are younger, healthier, longer, and then we get old. That period where we are old and inactive will not change. It'll be at the latter stage of our life. But the period where we will be healthy, involved, active, contributing is going to is prolonging itself. Now, with labor shortages, demographics, I mean, there is going to be a that may be very well. The idea of childcare is an interesting one. And the federal government, I think I'm very skeptical about the federal government getting involved in this. But if we want, for example, with demographics, labor shortages, more women to be able to make the choice to either enter or not enter the labor market, we need to create an environment where childcare services are going to be available at a reasonable cost. If we don't do that, 
it's going to be very difficult for us to increase their participation rate at the level it should be. Now, women are making the choice otherwise. They're just not having children. In certain countries like South Korea, they'll tell you it's too expensive. Imagine. Imagine what I'm saying here. It's just too expensive to have a child. Those are the things that I see coming in terms of how we organize our society. But I'm very, very interested in the issue of how we organize the workplace for experienced workers. It has all sorts of positive consequences. If people work longer, they'll be able to have more money for their retirement. They'll be healthier. Yeah, there's community components in there too. Yes, but it's well documented that a big part of being healthy is is a healthy social life. Is it by accident that in Great Britain, they named a minister responsible for loneliness? I would say probably not. (laughs) Loneliness has become a major social problem in our So back to your question, if I'm trying to look ahead and say, where are the next areas of issues? I'd say that that's one of them. And governments are not paying attention to it at all. Even in Quebec, or, or very, very I, I find Quebec to be quite little. progressive in many ways, especially with like childcare. Do you find that's true in Quebec? Yes, it is. Quebec has been at the forefront of development of issues, uh, social issues in a lot of areas. Childcare mm-hmm. is one of them, and uh, and where they've been very. And I was, uh, by the way, on childcare, I was very when I was named. liberal leader, I was very skeptical about it. I thought it cost too much because I am a fiscal conservative. That's how I describe myself. And on social issues, I am a progressive. That's, that's my, that's where I sit politically. And I thought it cost a lot of money. And I, I changed my mind because of the evidence. And I saw it did a number of things we did. And it's a whole package. It was childcare, parental leave for men and women. And a flexible package, plus we reestablished family allowances that were non-taxable, and we gave more money to poor families and single parent families, more money to them than others. And there was a child uh, tax credit for low-income workers. Now, the whole package put together created a very favorable policy for families. And at the end of the day, there's another way of looking at it. We made a choice that we in Quebec would, from a fiscal material point of view and policy, we're going to favor young families with young children. And that if you were not in that category, you'd pay more. It's a choice. It's as though a parent said to their kids, I'm going to help you now instead of helping you later on. I'm going to give you support, money, or and that's, that was the consequence of the choice. Now, what's the impact? Quebec had among the lowest participation rate of women in the labor market in Canada in the 90s. It now has one of the highest in the world, which has allowed family to have more revenue and a better standard of living. The birth rate went up, but only, it went up, but not as much as we thought or hoped. That's still the the big thing was a, a very marked reduction in poverty and for families with children. The only group in Quebec when I was in government, when I left government, for whom the level of poverty had remained just about the same were single people, older single people. We had not been able to move the dial for them, but all other categories, poverty went down. And so those are the things we have to think through. Absolutely. Not leaving behind demographics is critical. And that could not be more true today with the energy economy. 
So what does the clean energy economy look like in your province? Well, it's very, uh, actually, it's exciting. And, and Quebec's lucky, blessed, because geography. I mean, we just had good geology to do hydroelectric projects. And that's not the case of Ontario. It's partly the case of Manitoba and BC, not Alberta and Saskatchewan. I mean, it just it's, it's just there. It's one thing to have the advantage. It's another thing to understand you have the advantage and take and actually make it work for you. You know, some people spend all their lives missing the train. In the case of Quebec on this issue, they got it. And there was a few leaders who really, they got it. Bourassa among them. René Lévesque in the early 60s and said, you know, there's all this potential. We should really tap, tap it and use it to our advantage. Now, our economy generates, you know, 98% of our electricity is hydro, so it's clean. Plus, add that to the fact that we have a lot of geography and a lot of unexplored territory for minerals. And now there's a very strong demand for the strategic minerals. That includes rare earths lithium and graphite and cobalt and uh, all of that is on the territory is on is within quebec that's why i did plan all this plan for the development of quebec over the 49th parallel that concerned creek and if you tie that into the strong demand that will be there for electric vehicles for batteries and you you tie it together it presents a pretty good opportunity for hydrogen for example and green hydrogen but the good news, if you're Albertan, is that the world's going to need blue hydrogen too. We need blue hydrogen and we need all these resources. If Canada's going, for example, to meet our objectives for net zero in 2050, we are going to have to do all of the above. And all of the above includes small modular reactors, hydrogen, wind, hydro, carbon capture, storage. All of it is going to be... Uh, we cannot not do one of them because we don't. Uh, we're going to need all the tools in, uh, in our toolbox to be able to reach our objective. I agree. The math is just so astronomical in terms of the demand that it's unfathomable to, to so many. It's clear you have this energy strategy vision. You understand interprovincial issues. There was rumor of you running for conservative leadership. Is that something still on your horizon? Well, it, no. A year over a year ago, when the leadership position opened in the Conservative Party, a lot of people encouraged me to run, and that made me think about it. And one of the reasons was that the country is still balkanized, and you see it now as an Albertan relative to Quebec and relative to Ontario and the rest of the country. And for, for a country, for Canada to operate and be successful, we have to be able to devise national policies and visions that are able to join us together. And we need leaders who have made the effort to understand the country and understand those things. And that's why I was interested in running, because I thought that I could uh, help. It's, you know, and I'm going to say something that may sound not significant, but, you know, to be able to be a leader of the country or aspire, you have to know the country. <laughs> it sounds Sound unusual? Well, you know what? This is a, guess what? <laughs> it's a pretty big country. And Alberta is not like Quebec, and Quebec's not like Alberta. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. This idea that, we're, oh, we're different, so we should be. Texas is not like Boston. And California is not New York. 
And there's no one in the United States saying, oh, my God, we should separate because we're Californian. We're not like New York, right? It's okay to be different. At the end of the day, we have a heck of a lot more in common, which is not just a cliche, it's true. And But we need, at the national level, there's two things I think we need. We need leaders who understand that and puts the parts together. The other thing that would be good is to have leaders that actually understand how the country operates. And that's a source of frustration for me for this reason. I was in federal and provincial. This country, Canada, is run by the provinces. On a day-to-day level, hospitals, roads, education, everything. It's the provinces who do the heavy lifting. The federal government is like a holding company, but they don't know that, Alex. They think they run the country. And the media concentrated in Ottawa actually think the feds run the country. Well, you know what? They don't. And a lot of the times what frustrates the provinces is when the feds walk in and tell you, you should do this, you should do that. And you look at them and say, you know what? You don't have a clue of what you're talking about. And I thought at the time, and I continue to think, it would be good to have folks in Ottawa who actually have an experience and an understanding of that so that the country can work more efficiently. There's a real good role for the federal government. The feds can be conveners. They can bring together the disparate parts of the country to make them work more efficiently together and propose national projects and make them happen. But for that, it requires leaders who understand how this how the place works. In the case of Alberta and Western Canada, there's this long sense of alienation that uh, endures and it will have to be addressed one day. And a part of it is, a, is an institutional response in the way our, our federal institutions operate. You know, I'm not keen on constitutional reform, but I, uh, at one point, at one time, we're gonna, we'll, we'll need to address this and to make changes that will allow Albertans to feel that they're part of it. If there were a referendum, I'd get involved, certainly. And, uh, but, but for running for office, I don't, I don't see it now. And the present Conservative Party, I feel a lot of sympathy for Erwin O'Toole. I mean, it's tough to lead the party as it is now. They're distracting themselves a lot on issues. And the part I, I feel bad about here in Quebec, for example, there is a boulevard for anyone who is would propose leadership on a, being a fiscal conservative and progressive on social issues. Mr. Trudeau's gone so much to the left. And then the NDP's way out there on the left. And then you have the block. I mean, there's a boulevard, literally a boulevard. The opportunity to connect both parts of the country is there if only someone had the wherewithal to do it. Imagine you are at the helm of the Canadian ship. What is one thing you would focus on today? Just one. It would be... um, Immigration labor policy. I have a very deep belief that the countries that will get their immigration and labor policy right will be the big winners in the future. And what I mean by that in practical terms is that we have a great opportunity as a country to go out there and recruit people to come to Canada, among them professionals, researchers, tradespeople, and non-skilled labor, people who have no skills, who we need badly. To We have an opportunity to attract them to Canada, to integrate them. And, and we are, of all the countries in the world, we're probably the one who does immigration 
integration best. And both words have to, they have to rhyme. The only way you can succeed with immigration is if you successfully integrate. And there's plenty that's wrong with our system, but of all, if we compare ourselves to other parts of the world, I'm thinking of France and uh, even Australia. We do it better. Maybe more out of instinct than design, but we do it better. If we were able to get that right, we would have a great advantage economically, socially. That's where the future lies. And the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, I do a major rethink of organizing our world of work and how we deal in a society where people live longer and allow them to have a full life as opposed to this debilitating idea that at 60, over 60 years old, you should be retiring. Those are the things that I, I see that I think we should say. There's plenty of others, but those are the things I think about and I'd like to see change. Well, Mr. Charé, it was such a pleasure chatting with you and thank you for your time. And a huge thank you to our audience for listening in to the Global Energy Show podcast, Engage. You can check us out at globalenergyshow.com for information about our conference and exhibition taking place in Calgary, September 2021. If you liked today's show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.